So how's this new boy you're going out with? He's cute and very funny, but it's a little weird. He's always in the corner back by the wood pile. Yee. I'm a spun counter guy. Thanks for stopping by. First of all, I need to apologize. I have a bit of a cold. I knew I shouldn't have licked all those doorknobs. Anyway, moving on. My guest back by the woodpile today is Joe Torrey, a guy who was tinkering with computers back when the idea of having the said machine in our homes was the stuff of science fiction. Eventually, Mr. Torrey would go on to work for the legendary Amiga Computers, but first we talked about how a kid from Georgia ended up ahead of the digital game before the rest of us. Okay, my first obvious question, I suppose, is how did you get into computing and, and programming? Especially, this, this was back in the 80s, and I would assume you had been in it for some time. Before. Yes, I was. So tell us about that. Well, my first exposure to a computer was that I had a neighbor that had built an MSI 8080 computer. It's a 8-bit microprocessor. It had a whole bunch of switches on the front. It had eight switches for the address and eight switches for the data word that you were going to, to load. And every time he turned it on, he had to enter the address and then what command, then the address and the command and address command. So there's at least 16 switches. And then there was a button called examine, and then there was a, a load button, I guess. And in order to just get the computer to start, he had to do these switches. These were bytes basically, that were, were being loaded, and they were the instructions, to load his paper tape. And it was about uh, 16 commands in a row that would load the paper tape software. And then he, he could read, and I'm talking about yellow, five-hole, bought-it paper tape that they use on uh, Model 33 teletypes. There's old yellow paper and yellow strips, and that's where they make... Uh, you know, confetti from, they had one of those that had a very long program, you know, I mean, yards long, you know, rolled into a, a roll. So he had all these switches on his computer, and in order to boot his computer, all those commands had to be entered. And so as a little kid, 11-year-old, if I entered all of the commands correctly, and then I would enter or the byte in the address, the byte in the address, and then I would hit enter, enter, enter sequentially. If I did it all right, then he would give me 50 cents. Wow. And it was just a way to make money. So that, But that also taught me binary, and it taught me to, uh, you know, that the way the computers worked. If I did that correctly, and he'd give me 50 cents, which was a lot of money in uh, 1972, I guess, he would need me only w once a week or so. If, if the power went down or something went wrong, then he'd need me to start his whole computer back up again. So he was a good friend of our family, and uh, his name's Carl Stover, and uh, he later uh, mentored me all through my uh, learning amateur radio and, and other computing things. And That yellow tape would load the disk operating system for the hard drive that he had, and the, or rather the floppy drive that he had, an 8-inch floppy. And so it was a three-step process to kickstart his MSI 8080, and then he, at that point, had a CPM operating system computer that he could then use to write basic programs and do other things like that. So that was my first computer experience. That's amazing to me, especially during that time, because that's just like having a neighbor who happened to have a, a spaceship in his backyard. I mean, <laughs> uh, it was pretty much. Uh, he was a very eccentric neighbor. He was, was a graduate of Georgia Tech and then became a teacher's aide, and he taught uh, grad student classes in order for him to get more and more credits and things like that. And uh, he convinced my mother that I had uh, a talent and uh, that I should get a Heathkit oscilloscope for Christmas, which I did. And he, he would even pay half of it just because I, it was really important. I get some electronic tools to begin my learning of electronics. He, all, he had given me an old voltmeter. He had many uh, voltmeters just from uh, the broken ones at Georgia Tech. Um, so I got a voltmeter and learned how to test all the things that boys have when they're growing up, little motors, and are these batteries good, and things like that. Why does the headphones scratch? Why doesn't you know this or that work? Mm -hmm. So I got a Heathkit oscilloscope when I was 11, and it took me a long time to build, and it didn't work until I was about 12. I figured out all the things that I hadn't soldered correctly or wires I hadn't even connected, even though it had a place in the instructions where you check off that you did this, you did this, you did this, and 
I was treating it like schoolwork and not actually that, oh, I actually have to cut a wire that long and, and, and solder it between these two points. So uh, when did you jump into the computer realm as far as having your own computer or at least having access? Well, the first was access. And uh, I went to a school a few years later uh, when I was uh, 14 that had a Model 33 teletype that would connect by modem, well, 300 baud modem, and would connect to Georgia Tech's Cyber 74 mainframe. And they, we were given accounts, all, all the students were. And it was a nice private school. It was a very very fortunate that I went and had ability to connect to real computers. And so that's where I started learning uh, Fortran and BASIC. And then um, I got lucky that I was the one that found that there was a switch, uh, 300, 150. I was like, well, 300 twice, 150, what's this switch do? And no, no, don't touch that. You know, none of the controls. You can't touch any of the controls because that's just the way it was. You just didn't touch anything in because the phone lines were bad back then or whatever. For some reason, whoever set it up, set it up so that it was only 150 baud connection. So I flipped the switch and we got 300 baud. And it was like, the switch was right there the whole time. I mean, you know, hi-fi, lo-fi. Let's try hi-fi. No, no. So that was my, how. that's how I got access to computers. That would be, I guess, 76, 1976, 77, the Cyber 74. And that was a large mainframe. Was very large when we went on a tour to Georgia Tech to see it. Um, it was several rooms to hold that computer, and it had the old-fashioned reel-to-reel uh, tapes, with uh, which now I now know are nine-track tapes, and they, they would move periodically. And it also had a uh, for the Fortran, it had a card reader, a punch card reader, and it had a machine that you punched the card. It had a stack of blank cards, and you could type your program on a typewriter and it would start to move the card over like a quarter of an inch and then you type the next character and it would punch those chads right through, mm-hmm. punch holes right in a bare piece of uh, cardstock. And these weren't pre-punched like uh, the voting punch cards were. Right. This was just a car- piece of cardstock in it. This machine was the size of freezers that you put in your garage that have the door like a coffin. That size, one half of it was where you sat and the typewriter was and the other half was all the uh, mechanical punches to move the cards around. And do you still have those cards, any of those I cards? I do have some of those cards, and not only that, optical reader for those type of cards is a series of uh, phototransistors arrayed in a, in a line, and then if you pass the card over it with light shining, various bits, patterns will come out from the photovoltaic sensors, and I will be able to read my own cards again someday. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have the physical machine or anything. I just knew that the only thing I needed was the, the thing that shined it, the, the illuminator for one side, and then the phototransistor array on the other side, that then I would be able to reconstruct a device to uh, read old cards. I also got, for the paper tape, the punch paper tape, a little photo sensor for that. It's a, you know, that teletype tape, mm-hmm. they call it. The other thing about visiting the Cyber 74 suite was uh, we got to see the terminals that were connected directly to the mainframe, and it was a gigantic room with about 50 terminals, just rows and rows of, and when I say terminal, I mean it's a terminal. How do you describe terminal in... 2016. It's a, a <laughs> command line interface, uh, and that's it. All it is is typing. It's like if you go to the, the shell in uh, Mac OS or go to the uh, command prompt in uh, You're talking about just, just a black screen with letters? Yeah, go, yeah. Well, yeah, with green letters. Oh, okay, yes. Yeah. Green or amber and just one color. Right. And uh, various various games, various programs uh, you could get to if you knew what to type in the first place. They were not very user-friendly at the time. But having spotted that, I realized that I could come here anytime I wanted and use these. By just sitting down, all I had to do was use my login from Badea. I, I didn't have to call up over the phone line, and I could do this uh, on weekends or anytime I wanted. It didn't have to be just when we were doing the computer activities at school. I, I availed myself of that. All, all through my teenage years of going to Georgia Tech and using their computers, uh, just kind of blending in as a student. You uh, bogarted your way at Georgia Tech and got access to computers. When did it become a reality in your home? Well, I guess 
the first step is work in fast food <laughs> at McDonald's and realize that you don't want to work in fast food at McDonald's. <laughs> so I want to go home smelling like onions every day. Yeah. <laughs> so after high school, I went to DeVry. In between here, I, I earned uh, my amateur radio license, had gotten a massive amount of learning under my belt just at home to the point of, you know, even hurting my grades. I was really into building electronic circuits, radios, transmitters, uh, synthesizers, music machines. Mm -hmm. I was in in the engineering program. They had a test for hiring uh, graduates of their technician program. And uh, I thought, well, I'll just go take the test and see how I do. You know, maybe if I could prove that I already knew all this electronic stuff, which I felt I did as far as being a technician, then I could, you know, have a better job. And so I took the test and I ended up getting in trouble for doing that because the company came, Rockwell Collins Avionics came to the dean and they said, okay, we want these 10 people. They're the 10 top scores. We want these people. And I don't know where I placed in a 10, but I was, I was chosen to be hired by Rockwell Collins because as a graduate, but I wasn't a graduate. And, uh, got in a lot of trouble because I was, took a job away from one of their graduates from their point of view. Oh. And uh, he said, that, that's absolutely, you, you know, what you did is completely wrong. Um, and I said, well, I just wanted to see how I did. I didn't expect to get hired, but I just wanted to see how I scored. Um, so anyway, I got in touch with Rockwell just around the back, so I just routed around him, uh, his interference, and ended up taking the, another test at Rockwell to make sure that, you know, that I really knew just off the top of my head, what I knew. And uh, I was or 18 years old at the time, just fresh out of high school, practically. I'd only been at DeVry for one semester and uh, got the job at Rockwell Collins, and that was in avionics, so working on aircraft radios. Wow. So that is when I had enough income and money, and it was a triple the, what I was making at McDonald's. So it was a very, <laughs> very good job. Uh, it was hard working amongst other people that were older than me. I was 18 and they were all older, but it also very much matured me. It made me, you know, grow up, grow up faster, but it also gave me money to buy my first computer. Mm -hmm. And that was a Timex Sinclair. It was a kit computer. And I I was a big fan of kits because I could, I've been soldering since I was 11. Bought that, got that working and it had basic, it had 1K of RAM, but then I, there was a hack that you could put in another chip and have 2K of RAM. Wow, you're out of control. Yeah, well, it was important that I got that because it was, had I uh, not gotten that, I think I would have probably ended up not keeping with uh, the hardware of computers and I might have ended up getting like a Tandy or you know, not to d- disparage these computers. They're critical that everybody has something that they learned on. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't good enough that I could keep it. I had to have something better than it. And if I'd gotten a Tandy or a Commodore 64 too early, it might have delayed me getting an Amiga computer. might have put me off to, oh, this is good enough. I can do everything you know, on this, and, and then maybe I wouldn't have done it. Cool. So the Timex was a little bit more ad- adaptable, I guess? Than... Well, it, it was hackable. It definitely was. It had a really uh, poor keyboard, though. It had a membrane-type keyboard, uh, oh. kind of like those remote controls that don't even have buttons where you're just right. pushing on a piece of metal. Like the, like the speak and spell, I remember. Exactly. Yeah. That's the exact type of keyboard yeah so the timex sinclair was sufficiently insufficient <laughs> it was completely in, insufficient for continuing to learn it was an 8-bit computer it had only a black and white display had hardly any memory and it loaded its programs from cassette tape oh yeah and it took took a long time to load the programs if and if they loaded correctly so then after working at rockwell collins and i needed to I guess go beyond that. I worked at another company, Color Graphic Communications, mm-hmm. and that was a color terminal company. And they made color terminals instead of those monochrome terminals mm-hmm. and worked there for about uh, three years. In 1983, uh, one of my neighbors that uh, he had his parents, their family, they bought for their family an Apple Macintosh, black and white, the first model of the Macintosh. And it had uh, one floppy drive. And it had a, a mouse, and it's the first time I'd seen a mouse on a computer. And uh, it was very impressive to me uh, to, to see that computer. I actually had gone over to his house for a big party, and, but they had mentioned, oh, Joe, hey, we have a Macintosh, and it was in, in a, their, like their den of their house, and there was a big party going on at the time. Well, as soon as I saw that computer, 
I immediately was glued to it, and I had to explore every single floppy that came with that computer, every single floppy he had. I right protected all the disks. I said, I just want to look. I just want to look around. I want to, and I played with the drawing program, and I looked at every demo and every bit of software that was shipped with that computer. It was just absolutely amazed uh, at how fun it was. And you said that this neighbor of yours ended up being a, a politician from Georgia? Yes, he's a politician. I forget if he's a senator or a congressman. I, I think he's a congressman now that I think about it. He's a very smart guy. Very, okay. very smart. Cool. I guess that, that brings us to 1985. Okay. And that is when the Amiga 1000 came out. And I had uh, my eye on that because I was buying all the bike computer magazine and other computer currents, and I knew that that computer was coming out. I'm working at Color Graphic Communications, and they, they make color terminals for, for industry, for manufacturing plants, where you have this giant assembly line or a bunch of pipes for a distillery or something or a oil refinery, a paper mills, those types of things. And they, these color terminals are dedicated. They will show the whole on screen in co full color, all the pipes and all the valves and all the temperatures and controls. And they were critical for industry and they cost about uh, $5,000. And um, that was a, a bustling company. They were making them as fast as they could because they could sell them as fast as they could make them. The Amiga was going to come out and told my parents, you know, I need a little help here. Need to get one of these for Christmas, but I got to get the extra floppy drive and I have to get the memory expansion. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to need to buy, the, you know, a program to use, you know, for painting and stuff. And my mother's and uh, has a degree in photography and is an artist. And so she understood the painting aspect that it, it would be fun. And I took them to the store and showed them the computer and at the time, Andy Warhol was on the cover of the uh, Amiga World magazine, so that, that again helped my you know parents see the legitimacy of the artwork produced on it. And so for Christmas, I, they helped, they gave me some money. I went and bought the Amiga computer, and it, it was a lot of money. Was it like $1,600, right? Or? I think it was 1595 yeah, and mm -hmm. then plus a, a floppy drive, which is another 200 the uh, extra RAM expansion was another 250 I think, for that. And then a, a paint program, Deluxe Paint, well, that was, I think, 150 for that. And I think that's all I got at first. I think that was all I walked out the door with that time. And so it was about $2,000. Definitely set the course for my life. I am the Commodore Amiga 500 home computer. Dazzling animation at your command. I am the Commodore Amiga 500, a multitasking home office in your hand. I am the Commodore Amiga 500, total home video you control, and arcade-quality games in stereo. And now, you can be everything I am. Having bought the Amiga computer and bragging about it at work, it was like, well... Uh, bring it in. We want to see how they shield it because we're having to, to shield our computers and we have a new one coming out and we want to use an all-plastic case instead of all metal. And the Amiga is all plastic on the outside. They brought it in and we took it apart. And the first impressions of the other engineers at uh, Color Graphic Communications was that they had the signatures on the inside uh, on the cover. If you When you open it, they're molded into the plastic case of all the people that worked on the first Amiga company. And they were just kind of like jealous, like, God, we don't get to do that. What? People that work in California are so lucky. And, yeah. you know, we're just, just blown away by that, that the, the company would, would mold their individual signatures and, and even the uh, paw print uh, of J. Miner's dog is in there. So wow. They, kind of an Easter egg of sorts. Yeah, very much so. Right. The dog's name is Mitchie, <laughs> J. Miner's dog. And Mitchie helped in developing the Amiga because J. Miner would, he would say, Mitchie, should I use a DMA engine here, or is this would this be better if it was uh, pulled? Yeah. And Mitchie would, you know, you know, like he would nod for one way or the other. And somehow emote that aid and assist uh, J Minor in developing. Mitchie was at work was a, a fixture of the company Amiga, and was uh, everyone knew the dog, and uh, everyone said that the dog helped in the development. They would ask the dog questions about well, should I do it this way or that way. So at work. Um, I had downloaded from Digital Equipment Corporation a terminal emulator program would run in the Amiga as a task because it was the Amiga was a multitasking computer. You could run several programs at a time. And so if you loaded a terminal program, it would be just on another screen that you could get to by moving the mouse up to the top of, of the screen and simply pulling the screen down like you're you know, pulling a blind down or something. Mm -hmm. And on the other screen, I had a, a terminal program. And it was just like the terminal programs that 
we that were built into our dedicated terminals. They were dedicated VT100 terminals that responded to all terminal commands. Hmm. And we had a test set that uh, was a, a CPM mainframe that would test our terminals by sending commands to the terminal to tell it to draw a circle and draw a, a filled rectangle and draw triangles and draw straight lines and, and to, to do these commands in order that the terminals could display the graphics for uh, the industry pipes and valves and all those types of things were drawn by you know a circle and two and with an x in it looks like a valve and we was like well let's hook it up to the me and see if it could do it you know if it can follow all the commands and sure enough it did it did every single command and not only that it was doing it while it could be running a word processor and and a paint program and other things on other screens and just kind of get back to that one like you know just until you clicked over to that window and it would be there running the whole time even though you'd be off doing something else on another screen it was still there so that so blew away everybody at work. It was just like, how can this little computer, this toy that Joe got for Christmas, do all these things? So we see this, and I blurted it out, and I said, well, you know, it seems to me like we could just buy these Amigas and put them inside our equipment and for $2,000, put them inside our equipment and sell it for $4,000 instead of $5,000, and we still make $2,000 profit. So why don't we just do that? Well... That was kind of also the writing on the wall on the industry. The orders started to fall off and people quit buying just terminals. And um, that's also around the time when IBM's uh, XT computer, which cost about $5,000 at the time, started to be overtaken by clones of it that were much cheaper. That, you know, really those prices were very marked up and they didn't really deliver. They were so uh, task specific that they couldn't do other things. Right. And, uh, they charged big money because they could, right? There was no competition for the longest time, right? That's right. And so after Color Graphic Communications, after them seeing that the Amiga alone, that you, I could have, with my $2,000 computer, have completely replaced a $5,000 terminal. So that's kind of why I was soon laid off from the company, and then <laughs> other people were laid off. And that turned out to be a great thing because I had just bought an Amiga computer mm -hmm. and was had unemployment and couldn't get a, a job, and but had an Amiga computer mm -hmm. and was able to devote all of my time for months to the Amiga and learning how to use the paint program and learning other things and hanging out at the computer store and networking, talking to other people, joining the local Amiga user group mm -hmm. uh, on the second meeting. I joined that club. Access to people that knew more than me, which is always a good thing. Aren't you astronauts? Yes, ma'am. We like to compare notes with Stevie on the new space station. Hi. Hey. We're the Pointer Sisters. We need Stevie's help with our new album. The Amiga Computer. What can it do? Well, what do you want it to do? I need some more help. Mr. O'Neill. Upstairs first door on the left. Amiga from Commodore, the computer for the creative mind. Mr. Torrey would have a handful of computer-related jobs, including making video games for doctors and working in television, graphics, and animation, that would eventually lead him into the arms of his favorite computer company. Atlanta, Georgia is fortunate that we had industry trade shows that were rather large. We had the SIGGRAPH Graphics Conference. We had the National Association of Broadcasters come. We'd have Comdex with Bill Gates speaking, and over the course of a year, there would be two or three of these, and, and usually, in the beginning, Commodore would have a booth at, or in this case, an Amiga booth to me, just so they could sell every product that, that they made. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would always go to these, meeting the, all of the uh, other employees, I knew that I needed an icebreaker, some way to introduce myself that they would remember me, and the way I did that was I bought a blue LED in around 1986, or 86, 87, that, that time frame, blue LEDs didn't exist in the 70s, except in cryogenically cooled laboratory conditions. It just wasn't <laughs> possible. Right. Um, so, but there was a company, Siemens, in Germany that had developed a blue LED that would be used for blood glucose monitoring. It was for medical devices. And uh, I, just because I was in that industry, I, I was exposed to the fact that it the first blue LED existed. The problem was is it was $42 for one mm. LED. And that was a lot of money, but, and, and you know, other LEDs at the time were like a dollar or less or 50 cents or, mm. or even less than that, but they were always red. And then they came out with green and then they had yellow and they had orange and that was about it. There was just no blue. There was never going to be any blue LEDs. Forget it. It's impossible. The wavelength is too short. We can't make semiconductors that thin. Mm. Forget about it. 
But Siemens did, and they made a blue LED, and I realized I have got to get one of those. And my mentor, Carl, he said, you know what? That's cool. I've never had a blue LED. Okay, I'll, I'll go in and with you. So we bought two of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, by modern blue LED standards, it was a pathetic blue LED. It was very dim. It was a kind of a light blue, like a whitish blue. Um, but... Oh my gosh, it was a blue LED. I brought it with me to the trade show to show the guys that I'd met the year before at the Commodore booth my the blue LED. I said, hey, have you ever seen a blue LED before? Oh, there's no such thing as blue LED. They always would say that. And they're like, what? Could not believe it. Could not believe it. So then, hey, yeah, this is guy, he's got a blue LED. So I, I know my name was to them the guy with the blue LED. Right. Like one guy didn't see it the year before, but he heard about it when he got back. So I became great friends with him. Meanwhile, I'm at the Amiga Atlanta Incorporated User Group, and I'm doing the public domain software. And that is producing disks that have software that all of our users can share and use. That that was free. It wasn't like we're pirating software. It was all from public domain disks called Fred Fish disks. Mm -hmm. And Fred Fish... Rest his, his soul, but bless him for everything he did. He put together discs called fish discs. Three of these a month, sometimes four or five, and they were numbered. So his fish disc number 47 had Dave Wecker's VT100 pro emulator program on it, for instance. Or these discs would come out, and because I was connected in with the Internet and, and I could download uh, Usenet and, uh, and other places, I was tasked with putting together called the filet fish the best programs out of the discs from the Fred Fish discs that were public domain put together on one disc that was the Amiga Atlanta Disc of the Month, DOM. Whenever Commodore came into town, though, I would go down to the booth and invite all of the people to go out and play pool or come to our user group meeting and do demos. And So Commodore would come to the Amiga Atlanta user group meeting and show their, their latest stuff and a new chip that had uh, extra half-bright mode and had 64 colors in that mode instead of 32. And They got to use our user group just as much as our user group used Commodore. But I realized that I was falling behind in hardware. I was, had been a pixel cowboy for like 10 years at this point and was realizing that more and more things were coming out. And And so I was at an auction of electronics stuff and I was bidding on an optical sextant for an aircraft. It was a uh, cube, had a beam splitting cube at the center and it would look out the window and you could actually do celestial navigation from inside the airplane. Wow. And there were three of them. And uh, there was another guy bidding also, and somebody was going to get all three, but we realized, no, 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 let's, let's just bid it. That's the price, and then we're, we'll pay cash. We'll each get one. That's what ended up happening. Anyway, I'm striking up a conversation with this guy, and just the words that came out of my mouth when describing digital video and the resolution and uh, vertical and horizontal beams and just the things, he's like, what, how the hell do you know all about video? What, what, you know, because he, he had never met anybody that in Atlanta that had any kind of a common background of, of knowing anything about video, mm-hmm. and I hadn't either. I was like, well, how do you know about video? Is there, there's a company in Atlanta that does anything with video. It's like, yeah, Scientific Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Scientific, but the cable boxes. I was like, yeah, yeah, but we also make encoders. We encode uh, video. We compress it into MPEG, and then we you can transport it over the internet, and then you can decompress it, and then it's high def again. Mm-hmm. What? So, well, that's, if you know so much about video, you should work where I work. So I've been thinking about leaving the software, 3D animation, and was pretty good at it and had to, had a good resume and had, and uh, so applied for the job. And uh, then I worked there for uh, about uh, two and a half years, I guess. And uh, then the company decided it was going to sell that division to its main customer, Sea Change. So Scientific Atlanta sold the digital video, the ad insertion portion of the digital video group to C-Change. Then I stayed along as the engineer to sunset the ad insertion business, and that was by sunsetting. I mean, close it down and tidy up everything, get return all the test equipment to where that goes, and basically scuttle the entire our entire business. And then whenever that was over, well, I was out of a job. So then I asked C-Change, I said, hey, you guys need anybody? I said, yeah, well, we can hire you to uh, assemble prototypes, but, you know, that's about it. Okay, sure, no problem, because I was going to start giving him some input on the prototype and how this needs to be changed and that, and you should do it this way, and Mm -hmm. so on. I was back with the same guys again and was doing that for a couple months, and then uh, the the second time, Amiga went bankrupt in Germany, and uh, it was for sale, and Gateway was buying it, and then uh, Gateway bought it and was tracking all that the Amiga Atlanta user group. We were, I was keeping up with, with all that stuff. This was uh, 1997. 
Commodore went bankrupt the first time, 95, I want to say. And then ESCOM, a very large computer company in Germany, bought all of Commodore's assets. Then they lasted about two years, and uh, they went out of business, and then all of the assets were then bought by Gateway Computer. And Gateway hired Petro Tichenko to be the president of Amiga in, in Europe, in Germany, because that's where he lived. It also, Gateway decided that they wanted to start up and have uh, Amiga Computer be a, a thing that they sold again because they were getting so much mail from all the fans that and they couldn't believe the response. They had a toll-free number, and people, Amiga people were just calling constantly. Well, when's the next Amiga coming out? What What's next? What's new? When, when is the lap, Amiga laptop going to come out? When are, well, what are you doing? You've got this company. It's the best company in the world. You should stop selling PCs. You need to sell Amigas. Rabid fan base. So they realized, well, this there's something to this. We've got to have some type of community outreach. We've got to have some more people that in America that are doing this, not just in Europe. So when Petro Tsuchenko uh, was in Atlanta for Comdex, I took him on a tour because I was with the user group, and I already knew everybody at all of the trade shows, Jerry Purnell, Kiki Stockhammer, Tim Jennison, all the people at New Tech, all the all of the big wigs at all of the uh, graphics and animation places as well. So I took him on a tour of Comdex and introduced him to everybody, that this is Petro Tuchenko, and, and he would give them their business card, and it had uh, his name on the front, and the cow pattern mm. that Gateway used to put on their boxes. Right. A very impressive card, and they were just so glad that they got to meet this German uh, president of Amiga, he was happy as could be that he, you know, was meeting all these uh, industry bigwigs, and I was happy as could be because I was helping facilitate all this. Gateway announced it's online in, in some of the online forums that they wanted to meet with people that uh, were in the Amiga industry in order to decide a direction for what they should do. They wanted to interface with the community, and they had what they called the Amiga Summit at Sioux City, South Dakota, where the Gateway plant was. And they even paid for to fly people out to Gateway, to South Dakota, to see the Gateway plant and tour, and also to talk with all of the engineers at, at Gateway about what the Amiga computer is and how we can use it, how, what it will take to sell it, etc. cetera. Uh, in on that, I guess, mostly because I knew Petro, and mm -hmm. Petro was, Suchenko, was going to uh, be at the meeting uh, as well as a, a dozen other people. Also, there's a lot of jostling for, you know, who's going to get hired or who's, who's going to be in charge of this or that. I guess I got picked because I had the resume from, and I had Petro Tsuchenko's blessing and, you know, that he said we should hire me first off. And so from the, the summit on, I, I was hired at uh, Gateway. They made me an offer. <laughs> Outrageous. South Dakota, I hadn't realized, but I, all my interactions with all the Commodore and Amiga people was, I always wished I was an Amiga engineer. I always wished that I could have that job, and it, it really just surprised me. That, oh my God, I can't believe I work for Amiga now. Mm -hmm. It's what I've been working my whole life to do, almost. Now, South Dakota is pretty, um, there's not a, the population is not vast. Was that a shock to you, especially after being from Atlanta? Where it's located is Sioux City, mm -hmm. uh, South Dakota. But the city is split in three. There's Nebraska Sioux City, there's Iowa Sioux City, and there's South Dakota Sioux City. It was kind of a culture shock going to such a small city from a thriving metropolis like Atlanta. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a lot of good ethnic food. They didn't have independent newspapers. Uh, they didn't have uh, Rastafarians and lesbians and all the inns. They, all, the, <laughs> all the great rich things of life, they lacked. Um, I also was fortunate that I lived in the South Dakota part because it was basically a whole country club and golf club and everything set up just for Gateway. All of the houses, all the apartment complexes, all of that was just to support a factory with 8,000 people working in it. There were not very that many engineers at Gateway, and we were in a separate building. We weren't in Gateway's building. We had our own office on uh, Derby Lane. Uh, we had only, I think, about 11 employees at the peak. It was uh, it's thrill of my life. 
one of the uh, missions that I was tasked with was to go to Germany and meet with Petro and go to a company called Matzet, M-A-T-Z-E-T. Mm-hmm. Matzet is a technology company that, that does software and hardware. Matzit is most famous for being the company that reverse-engineered the 386 microprocessor, the Intel 386. Matzit reverse-engineered that processor by simply getting one and taking it apart layer by layer and producing a clone of the 386. Mm-hmm. And that was in the Cold War era. And these this companies were, were located in West Germany prior to the fall of, of the wall. Mm-hmm. Well, years later, they're still in the technology business. They're in, in software and hardware. And they were tasked by ESCOM when ESCOM owned Amiga and was in business with doing a lot of various things for ESCOM, in addition to doing the Amiga things that they're doing. And those two things were doing research and development on a future computer called the Amiga Walker, of which there are only two prototypes on Earth. And uh, the Walker PC was very popular at all of the uh, German trade shows. It was the only new Amiga there had ever been, basically. Mm-hmm. The other task that Matt did was they stored the entire Unix archive of every workstation that, at Commodore. And by workstation, I mean the Apollo chip designing workstations, the, all of the CAD workstations to design all of the cases, all of the dimensions, all of the, the engineering drawings that describe all of the computers, all of the source code, all of the operating systems. They had a VAX mainframe called CBM VAX. It used to be online. It was the, the where Commodore was and everything that went in or out of Commodore was was there. Mm-hmm. So Matsit has two things that now are owned by Gateway. And they're there, and I needed to basically take an inventory of what was there and decide what were we going to keep hiring this company or we you know what what services are they providing etc and uh, it was two very different cities one location of Matset was in the city called Gina J E N A and the other was in a city called Erfurt E R F U R T we went to one with with Petro the building was located in a Stasi head, headquarters and the Stasi headquarters was a bulletproof building it had doors that were half-inch thick steel, but it was converted into an office building. It just happened to used to be a Stasi military installation. And for Um, folks listening, the the Stasi were basically the secret police of the communist East Germany. In that building was all of the hardware archive of the Amiga, and that's where also they did all the hardware development. And they showed me the Walker prototypes and what what other projects that that they had worked on. They had to actually bring it out. They weren't actively working on it. They had mothballed it, you know, just waiting for something to happen after Mm -hmm. ESCOM went out of business. And I was not impressed with their hardware at all. Uh, Having come from Scientific Atlanta and Bell South and Color Graphic Communications, what they're doing really seemed kind of uh, second world. It wasn't modern electronics. They were not making anything new there. And it looked like they'd stopped working on it years ago, too. Like, it wasn't even... A year ago, like it was three years ago, uh-huh. uh, and nobody there knew anything about it. Too, the other people had left or moved on, and so they didn't really impress me as far as that goes. But they did have something else. They have some other stuff to show me, and that's the stuff that they got from Westchester, Pennsylvania. The stuff that they brought back. So that's downstairs, and we go downstairs, and that's where I started seeing more and more of these bulletproof doors. I mean, doors so that you could have an armed riot on the other side of the door, and you're still safe on <laughs> your side of the door. Uh, and down in the in the, the bowels of this building, uh, safely tucked away, and it wasn't a you know dank basement, it, it, far from it. In fact, it was very nice wood cabinets with glass windows on the front of the door, so you could see what was inside them. And there was a small museum of Amiga hardware in there, oh. of all types that they had brought back from Commodore. Mm-hmm. So I see all this stuff in there, and it's intriguing to me. I mean, I'm the biggest Amiga aficionado there is, and I'm the first person seeing this museum of Amiga stuff. And I was just, just you know, happy as can be to see it. And I knew knew what the stuff was. I knew when I see uh, an Amiga custom chip and it says Lisa on top, I know what chip that is and what, what product it went in. And mm-hmm. Amber, and, I, and there were these other chips that were under development for the new Amiga uh, graphics system, the advanced Amiga architecture and uh, those chip names and sure enough they're there they actually have samples of these chips uh, and they're in the very very nice gold-plated packages because uh, whenever you get chip samples they're not in a cheap plastic case they're in a nice ceramic gold case so I start looking and I open the glass door and there's some get this notebook and uh, it says uh, you know, uh, Amiga audio chip and so I open the book and, uh, and it's a journal it's Glenn Keller's journal it's his handwritten notes 
in his handwriting on graph paper of all of the, the design of the chip. And I'm just, I'm just blown away. I cannot believe that this his what he wrote this when he was at Amiga in, in California, and then it went to Commodore in Pennsylvania, and then now it's in Germany. Wow. And now I'm seeing it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to call back to Gateway. And it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and I wake up the general manager of Amiga, Jeff Schindler. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. I said, Jeff, sorry to wake you, man, but we've got to get all this stuff here. It's got to come back with me. I can't go to Erfurt tomorrow unless this is packed and goes. And it's like noon in, in Germany there, where, where we are. So he, they're talking in German. You can kind of understand when I'm, you know, what's up. I say, uh, we need, I need your help. I need, what I need is boxes. I need a bunch of big boxes and a bunch of tape and lunch. And I packed up all those boxes with their help. And they were very, very professional about it. I, I was apologizing. I was like, you know, I'm sorry. You know, I have to take this, take this back. But that's, you know, this is, we own the company now and we have to, he said, it's no problem. It is your property. Uh-huh. And I was just like, wow, they're so logical about this. It's right. so kind. I was feeling sorry for him because, you know, if I was losing my Amiga Museum, I would be really bummed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I uh, packed it up, and Gateway has a depot of United Parcel Service. Mm-hmm. And when I say depot, I mean eight bays of 18-wheelers size depot where they ship out all, all their computers. But they also have uh, delivery. They you know take delivery of all the parts are shipped there to make the computers. And so it was very easy to get prepaid, pre-printed shipping instructions to ship exactly to that location. It was very easy. I just said, you know, Gateway, Sioux City, South Dakota, and that was all I needed for the address because there was only one location there, and anybody mm-hmm. <laughs> anybody that worked at uh, UPS knows exactly where the depot was. So these boxes, we insured them to the maximum. It was $50,000 per box, nine boxes, uh, all to be shipped to that location. And uh, so that I boxed them all up and I saw them get on the truck. And then on to the other location of Matsit. They had the Amiga software archive. Is All of the tapes and all of the hard drives, magnetic media, all of the data basically of all of the computers were archived onto magneto-optical disks which will hold about uh, 650 megabytes each. They're five and a quarter inch disc and they are uh, two-sided. And they have a little door, they look like a gigantic floppy, but you can see the, the disc in there in a clear case. Mm-hmm. And they all were all, tra- all transferred onto these floppies and it was, I think it was 36 of them. And they were mounted in this robotic changing machine that would, would select which disc you want and it would go get the disc and pull it out of the the uh, library and then insert it into a drive and it had two drives in it that way you could copy and it could swap them they had a like this butterfly mechanism where it could rotate 180 degrees and like an old jukebox or something yeah yeah it's a good example the software that archives all of the commodore's cbm vax computer is maintained by a software called legato is the name of the company and it's called networker it has a pretty slick user interface in that you just basically ask it questions like, where is Kickstart? Mm-hmm. And Kickstart is the uh, ROM that boots up an Amiga. It's the first uh, file that loads all the operating system. So you type in Kickstart, and it says then gives you locations of which computers that word was ever on. This was a huge long list. It was on every computer, basically. Uh, I realized I, you've got to be more specific. I hadn't. That was just the first thing I said. That that's an Amiga thing. It won't be, you know, if I asked for a Windows on a Windows computer archive, you can imagine how many hits you'll get on something like mm-hmm. that. So I asked for a Kickstart dumb question. I should have asked for something more complicated. So then I asked for a, a handler, like a disk handler dot device, or just some esoteric smaller file. Uh, there's this, I've got to really narrow this down. So I said, okay, well, how about the password file? Because mm-hmm. there's only one password file in Unix, and that's the file, the password file itself. Mm-hmm. So... I'm root on the CBM Vax here with the Legato Networker, and I have every single drive at my head, so password file. And it pops up. Hmm. And I'm like, what? I ha- Let me see it. Okay, so then the robotically it goes and it gets, gets the disk that has the password file on it, loads it into the machine, copies it, and then it's like, where do you want to put? <laughs> like, where do, where do you want to put it? Floppy? And it, yeah, yeah, floppy. Disk. You have tape. We have four millimeter tape. I was like, well, let's just see it on screen. And so on screen comes the password file. Everybody's password at CBM Vax. Every single engineer, Irving Gould, 
uh, Dave Haney, every single name, you know, I'm just le- reading the list, and it's all these people I've heard of that don't, don't work at Commodore anymore. Wow. You know, since three years ago. And it, it's all a list, and it's the password file. And I'm like, you know, this is like Nirvana. I'm like, I have the password file of CBM Vax. <laughs> you, you couldn't hack in to get this, but <laughs> you can sell the company to another company, and then they'll archive it onto a magneto-optical disk, and then you can just type a command for password file, and it'll just pop up on your screen. <laughs> so I was very impressed. So what I need is then is is found out that I can get a catalog of all of them, all of the files, what they're named, what they're called, where they're copied, etc. Um, and of all those disks, and that will be a huge amount of data. It won't fit on a, a floppy. It'll barely fit on a CD, but it will fit on a four millimeter digital audio tape. Mm-hmm. And they have that, that type of drive, and then we have those at Gateway. That was a common backup method at the time. So I got a copy of every single file in Legato Networker, and got two copies, actually, in case there was something wrong with the disc cassette. And those I physically took back to Gateway. We then started to realize, you know, look around to see what files we had. And we had the entire operating system, all of the source codes, and new, new versions of the operating system, all kinds of things. And so that was, uh, that was a major accomplishment there. finally discussed the sad end of Amiga computers as far as Gateway was concerned. Amiga had decided that uh, they needed to move to California and in order to attract more talent and that they were probably not going to do the 3.5 upgrade. I was rather incensed at that because they had kickstart ROMs that still said Commodore Amiga, copyright Commodore Amiga, you know, 1993. I said, you just bought intellectual property. You need to, we can come out with a new ROM that says copyright Gateway Amiga 1997. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just the most basic thing in the world. You, you just change that. It's simple. We, we just make new ones that have our name on it instead of Commodore's name on it. Mm-hmm. So we worked out a way to, to do that, changed all that, also uh, worked on the Y2K bug at the same time and did that. But then we also needed a software upgrade, the Workbench 3.5 upgrade. And they had gotten a bid for from Hagen Partner for to do the 3.5 upgrade and how much it would cost. And Gateway was starting to drag their feet like, well, we could save this much money. We don't really need to do that. I said, well, if you're going to do it, then I'm going to quit because I'm going to be on the outside of this building with a torch to burn this place to the ground because that is not going to flush. Mm-hmm. You have to do this. You have to make the ROMs. You have to do the software upgrade. You told everybody at the trade show you were going to do the software upgrade. This is not fair. And, and I, there's no way I can be working here because I'm not going to get burned to the ground. Mm-hmm. I'll be on the outside. <laughs> All right. And I was out of it. So that's when I, I left Amiga, and that's when the consultants that worked at Amiga, they started to have a lot more power because they uh, lived on the West Coast. And uh, I don't know what really happened, and I can't believe that there is any really malice as much as what can be explained by ineptitude. That's usually the case with you know with something going wrong with computers. It's a mistake, not a, a, an intentional thing. So I, I think they just didn't realize what they had, and... Uh, didn't make the best of it. So these days, did it sour you so much that you couldn't use the Amiga anymore without thinking about this? or Not at all. I started to develop a new, a next generation Amiga called the Boxer, the Boxer 2, mm-hmm. along with the, the original designer of the Boxer, Mick Tinker. Built uh, the second uh, prototype of the Boxer uh, for him in America. Had a, you know, had a, another job at uh, Anti-Gravity Productions. They hired me as soon mm-hmm. as I left Amiga. So let me get this straight. They were wanting to make a, a sequel to the Amiga. Yeah, next but, but but not under that name. No, they were going to call it. It would be Amiga compatible. Oh, I see. So it wouldn't be an Amiga, but people considered it to be the next Amiga. And they were doing this way before I worked there. They were selling the idea that you know if you would give them money, they'll do the research and development, and then when we're done, we'll, you'll have yours. You'll have paid for it, and I, I think that they, they just couldn't do it. The, mm-hmm. the part of the problem was the person that was working on it, Mick Tinker, already had a full-time job, and it was more like a hobby thing to him, mm-hmm. and it was just too, too much for him to continue to do it. That's why they hired me to, you know, to help do that, to make the prototypes for him, because he just didn't have the time. It hasn't gone anywhere. I don't think it will ever go anywhere, but it doesn't you know sour me so much. There's lots of... Uh, you know, new Amiga things happening with the FPGAs, with the accelerators, all of the uh, new products. We have the GoTech 
solid state floppy now. That's completely changed. Mm-hmm. Floppies aren't going bad anymore. I mean, once you copy them to the GoTech and solid state, they're going to be there forever. And it's neat now that also I can have uh, friends in Europe and Australia and, and all over the world that are Amiga aficionados. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, I feel, I love giving back, you know, advice and helpful tips if I can. I'm just really psyched that there's so many experts now. There's so many people that really know a lot of stuff. And the uh, FPGA people in Poland have, have absolutely outstripped me. There's no way I could do what they're doing. So real quick, what have you been doing recently? I just retired from building combat robots for the uh, Dragon Con convention, the robot battles they mm-hmm. have there, robotbattles.com. And I did that for over 10 years and uh, was, uh, if not the most winning person over 10 years, the second or third. I haven't done it for, for two years now, but I still have on robot. It uh, was very fun, very uh, intense competition, and it happens every year at the Dragon Con Science Fiction Convention, and that's also where I met my wife, who, or re-met my wife. She used to be in the user group, and uh, I saw her again after uh, seven years, not, never not seeing her at the user group anymore, and she was suddenly at Dragon Con on another team's robot that lost to mm-hmm. me, and uh, then the next year she comes back, I get to talk to her again, and again they lost, and I won, and so I was... <laughs> kind of making ways with her and uh then eventually uh we ended up getting married so uh you know i met my wife at uh use an amiga user group meeting or a robot contest however you want to look at it so on like romantic evenings you guys build robots and fight each other <laughs> no because she would win uh she's really good at gaming she's a computer programmer she writes uh apps for the pebble watch and you know she's really good at gaming Lastly, Mr. Tori hasn't lost his love for LED lights. Years later, the, they've perfected making purple LEDs or UV LEDs. And uh, I found out that these were going to come out and got an engineering sample as soon as I could and uh, had to fill out a form saying that I would not allow it to be used in any consumer device that you know would radiation could go on people's face. And I took that purple LED around that ultra. It, it's, you can see it's purple, but you can tell it's a black light. It's mm-hmm. like that, that kind of color. And I uh, took some fluorescent material around at the Amiga 30th anniversary in California, and I showed all of the uh, old Amiga people that I had shown their first blue LED, I showed them their first ultraviolet LED. If you'd like to get some more of Joe Torre, be on the lookout for his appearances, speaking at various computer and hacker conferences, including the annual Freaknik in Nashville, Tennessee, or you can email him at joet at mindspring.com. That's J-O-E-T-E-E at mindspring.com. And ask him about his poem, Ode to Boing. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. And if you'd like to see a list of former episodes of In the Corner Back with the Woodpile. Go to spuncounterguy.com and click on the pictures of piles of wood with chairs in front. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Thank you.